Good afternoon, and welcome to the Council of American Ambassadors Roundtable Discussion with Ambassador John Abizade. I'm Kathleen Sheehan, the Executive Director of the Council. Um, before we get going today, I just have two brief housekeeping notes. First, we're going to be recording today's talk, and it will be on our website later so that those members who are not able to participate live can watch it later. And second, we strongly encourage questions from the audience. And to uh, ask a question, all you have to do is go to the bottom of your Zoom screen and click on the Q&A button and type in your question there. And with that, I am very, very pleased to introduce Council Member Ambassador Ryan Crocker, who is going to introduce today's speaker and moderate the event. And so with that, Ambassador Crocker, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Kathleen, and welcome to all of you. Uh, this is a really great uh, pleasure for me to introduce Ambassador Avizade uh, as uh, uh, he moves into yet another phase of his uh, uh, amazing life. Uh, we go back a fair distance, um, and indeed we were reminiscing just now uh, about some of our previous encounters, uh, knowing that we would not want to do that in front of an audience. Uh, so let me just say a couple of things here. Uh, we all know General Abizade, either uh, in person or through his storied reputation, uh, but he brought absolutely unique characteristics to Saudi Arabia. Uh, he not only served in the Middle East, he studied the Middle East uh, intensively, including at um, University in Amman, Jordan. Uh, his master's degree is from Harvard in Middle East Studies, where his uh, paper on defense policy for Saudi Arabia um, uh, not only got an A, it got this from Nadav Safran, the uh, head of the uh, Middle East Studies Department at the time. Um, it was the only paper of a master's student I had ever kept. It was absolutely the best seminar paper I ever got in my 30 plus years at Harvard. And the point here is we sent an eminently qualified American to Saudi Arabia at a critical time. Uh, he can tell you how many trips he made to the kingdom in uniform. Uh, uh, I can't think of anyone better suited for that position, better qualified for it than John Abizade. Uh, Ambassador Abizade, the floor is yours. Well, thanks very much, Ryan. I uh, certainly appreciate that great introduction and I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to those of you that are on Zoom today for the uh, opportunity to talk to the Council of American Ambassadors. Kathleen Sheehan, thank you very much for getting me to do this. Ryan, thank you for getting me to put on a tie for the first time since I left Saudi Arabia back in January. So uh, those of us that are in Nevadistan and Spokanistan, like Ryan and I are, uh, don't normally put ties on, but for today, it seemed like the right thing to do. Earlier today, before I get started on Saudi Arabia, I, I spent time on a, another Zoom conference celebrating 30 years of Operation Provide Comfort. We were on with James Baker, Hosher Zabari, um, Jay Garner, Jim Jones, many others, Masoud Barzani. And we, we talked about the accomplishment of Kurdistan and what it is still doing today and how it is going. And I thought stability is the word that I would use to what Kurdistan brings to the region. 
And stability is a great theme to talk about with regard to Saudi Arabia as well. But when I was contemplating what would I use as a leitmotif or a, a uh, title for my talk today, I thought Saudi Arabia at the crossroads. I mean, there were so many changes, a tremendous program of reform, yet a tremendous period of uncertainty in other areas and difficulty with regard to future stability. Um, it was just a fascinating nearly two years of duty there. Uh, unfortunately, seven months of it happened to be without my spouse as we got separated during the COVID epidemic. Uh, Kathy and I were back in February to see Secretary Pompeo and be at the Chief of Missions Conference. Uh, got a call from the embassy saying, you got to get back. They're shutting down all the airways. There's one ticket on one Saudi airliner. Um, unfortunately, there, you won't be able to bring Kathy back. So I said to Kathy, I'll see you in a couple of weeks because that's what I thought would happen, that we'd work our way through that quickly enough. And seven months later, uh, we brought her back, but uh, both of us had a wonderful time serving in Saudi Arabia, learned a lot and did a lot. So what about Saudi Arabia as a, as a society at the crossroads? It's a great partner of the United States. Unfortunately, today we find too much of the time spent talking about Saudi Arabia, talking about the personality of the crown prince, uh, the tragic events surrounding the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, many other strange things that happened at the Ritz Hotel, uh, problems with the uh, Prime Minister of Lebanon, etc. But I, but I have to tell you, as much as that consumed time for me, what really consumed more time for me was the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States and whether or not we could hold it together for the long term whether or not the partnership that started with the meeting between Franklin Roosevelt and Abdulaziz, King of Saudi Arabia back in 1945 could be sustained forward. And as always, it's a mixed bag. I found times of great strain in the relationship, particularly when the Iranians were shooting at the Saudis uh, with missiles directly from Iranian territory. Um, then I also found periods of great calm and great partnership, particularly when we decided to deploy some forces to assist Saudi Arabia in their own defense. So as we think about the issues with Saudi Arabia, you know, we can talk about internal issues, we can talk about external issues, uh, but I, I do note that Saudi Arabia is at the hub of three continents. And you, you can't really contemplate the world moving forward without stability in Saudi Arabia and stability within the royal family, stability within the oil markets, stability within the economies of the global uh, economic structures. But when you look at Saudi Arabia today, it's really clear that their number one foreign policy problem remains Iran. It has been for many years. Certainly there was a period during the Shah's reign where there was some period of detente and cooperation, especially down in the southern parts of Oman and Yemen. But today we see Iran and Saudi Arabia sparring as the ideological champions of their own version of Islam. Shia Islam for Iran, Sunni Islam for Saudi Arabia. And the relationship with Iran is very difficult, very challenging. And it has become even more challenging now 
that the new administration has decided to, in some fashion, move forward back towards the JCPOA. Now, look, all of these subjects I'm going to bring up here in this introductory period, we could talk about forever. I'm, I'm going to mention briefly issues here uh, in the hope that we can have a much more robust conversation in the question and answer period. But certainly, Iran stands at the top of the challenges for Saudi Arabia. Challenges because Iranian proxies are operating from Lebanon, they're operating from Syria, they're operating from Iraq, and of course, they're operating from Yemen. The Saudis have been the recipient of missiles, Iranian missiles, drones, and other types of activity uh, from the south, from Yemen, from the north, from Iraq, in the hands of Shia-controlled militias there, IRGC-controlled militias there. And they also sustained attacks directly from uh, the Iranians themselves. It's true that the situation with regard to the war in Yemen spawns a lot of this activity, but it's also true that the IRGC Quds Force, which is different from the government, really propels the region towards tremendous instability. And the Saudis now are contemplating where their relationship with Iran needs to go in light of the international community moving back to some form of the JCPOA. The war in Yemen, of course, has been a great difficulty for the Saudis. They went into it under the impression that it could be done quickly and easily, it would be supported by the United States. But like all things in the Middle East, once your best intention, intentions are tested, you find that things can quickly turn into a quagmire of almost unbelievable dimensions. It has been difficult for the defensively based forces of Saudi Arabia to transition to an offensive based war against Yemen, but it hasn't been difficult for the Iranians to figure out how to leverage the Houthis in a way to challenge Saudi Arabian stability and Saudi Arabian uh, legitimacy in, in the area of the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. You know, there's also a period of uh, Saudi, Arabian, Saudi Arabia being in the crossroads of its own transformation of its own society. Its military is in the middle of a transformation program. It has not done very well in the battle against uh, the Houthi rebels in their Iranian IRGC counterparts. Uh, it has not done as well as it could do with regard to the uh, integration of its air defenses. And so now the good news is they've recognized that, the, that they have to do better and they've turned to the United States to help them with military transformation. They're at a crossroads with regard to the relationship with China. Their number one trading partner hugely important to their oil industry. They're uh, trying to figure out where their relationship with China stands as the United States reappraises the relationship strategically with Saudi Arabia, and as Iran and China start looking at new opportunities for cooperation. Will those new opportunities be directed against the Saudis, or will they be opportunities that will allow peace and prosperity to have a greater chance in the broader Middle East. Of course, my view is that as long as the IRGC 
Quds Force calls the shots in Tehran, uh, stability in the Middle East will be hard to come by. Other areas of, of uh, interest certainly include transformation of society in general in Saudi Arabia. The role of women, for those of you who've traveled to Saudi Arabia many times like I have, uh, it, it's interesting. In the old days, the Mutawa, the religious police used to be around, uh, able to go after their own citizens, particularly women who were showing uh, too much hair or too much skin. Uh, of course, extremely modestly dressed to start with, uh, but there were many cases of women being abused by these religious police. Today in Saudi Arabia, you don't see the religious police anywhere. You see women on the streets with what in old days would have been called immodest dress. You see women driving, you see women being promoted to the ranks of council of ministers. You see women actually leading companies in a very capable and um, wonderful way as far as I'm concerned. To, to understand that this 50% of the population is being empowered is a revolutionary statement for those of us who have been Saudi Arabia for many years. So uh, it's quite important that in my view that this transformation succeeds. On the other side, there's transformation of the clerical class, moving away from the extreme interpretation and the extreme version of Wahhabi Islam that was exported in a very bad way to places like Brian Crocker served in, such as Pakistan and the Fatah border provinces there, where Wahhabi literature and Wahhabi preachers preached a gospel of hatred and resistance that is still with us today. And is slowly, but fortunately, slowly is better than not at all, changing in a more positive direction. Saudi Arabia is always in the middle of transforming its relationship with the broader Muslim world. There's a reason that King Salman is known as the custodian of the two holy mosques. He holds that in great, great esteem. He and his government and the royal family try very hard to ensure that the relationship with Saudi Arabia to the holiest places of Islam are governed in a way that is acceptable to the rest of the Muslim world. And while that may be true, it is also interesting to see how reticent they have been about condemning what is going on in China with regard to the Muslim Uyghur population, where they are sequestered in concentration camps in ways that is difficult for us to understand how Saudi Arabia could countenance. There's a transformation of the economy. They want to change the economy completely. The crown prince says, let's move from our current oil-based economy to one that's a more normal economy based on resources of our people, the talents of our people. We want to have a tourist opportunity. We're working to, they are working to build a tourist-based economy. You've heard about these tremendous programs of moving from the oil-based economy towards services. Uh, and they want the United States to be their number one partner in that. But now they're at the crossroads of trying to understand whether that will still be true or not. This transformation of the economy, of the social system, of the military system, it, it's a miraculous thing to say, 
And while Vision 2030 of the 35-year-old Crown Prince is impressive in its outline, it's hard to know whether or not it will be able to move forward in the way that he hopes. It will require a lot of money. It will require a lot of support. But most importantly of all, it will require peace and stability. Vision 2030 can't be achieved as long as there are external threats to the kingdom. It's also important to understand that the royal family is at a crossroads. The king, 85 years old, is certainly turned over a tremendous amount of his power to his son, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, at 35 years old. The Crown Prince told me once, look, what I'm trying to do here is change my country to a more normal country. We're the 18th largest economy on the planet, yet people look at us like we're not really part of the mainstream. I want us to be part of the mainstream, and I know how difficult that's going to be, but don't think I can do that without being an authoritarian leader. So what all of us wonder about is how will this change in the relationship between the king and the governed work when King Salman passes. The crown prince has consolidated power in an unprecedented degree. It's clear that there will be uh, a council of uh, senior elders convened that will make the decision as to who the next king will be. But it's very hard for me to think that there's any room for there to be any other decision other than Mohammed bin Salman, despite what many of the people that are in uh, aggravated uh, opposition to the crown prince and his team that are largely in the diaspora. This consolidation of power is quite a remarkable thing, but so is the progress of the reforms. Saudis are working today in unprecedented numbers in services industries and the oil industry. It was remarkable to see how Aramco recovered so quickly from the attacks that it suffered back in 2019 at the hands of the Iranians in September. Uh, it was quite an impressive thing to see. I thought oil would be offline for a long, long time, but the Saudis proved to be industrious, capable, and under the leadership of Amin Nasser at Aramco and the, the uh, energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz, it was amazing to see how they were able to fix that particular problem. The other thing I would say as I move towards closing here and move towards the question and answer session is that Saudi Arabia is at the intersection of the sectarian curse of the Middle East. Sectarianism is the curse of the Middle East. And Saudi Arabia faces ISIS and radical Islam on the one side, primarily to its west, but also in other places around the broader Middle East. And it faces the IRGC and sectarian Shia revolutionary ideology on the other side. For the first time ever, we have in the Middle East, a country with a crown prince and king 
committed to confronting both forms of extremism. And it was and is my opinion that we need to support the Crown Prince's many transform, transformation strategies if we are ever to achieve success in the broader Middle East. The defeat of ISIS, the normalization of Iran as a normal country, all of these depend so much upon peace, stability, and prosperity in Saudi Arabia, which is why the United States needs not to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state, but needs to make it a partner, yet at the same time, work to reform its, its institutions that must change. The secret police, the intelligence services, the judiciary, the Wahhabi clerical extremist groups that are still around, quiet, but still there. So while Saudi Arabia would like to go it alone, would like to be successful, Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman, in my view, can only be successful with the help of the United States of America. China won't fight for Saudi Arabia. Europe won't fight for Saudi Arabia, but maybe the United States will if it's engaged in a defensive struggle against the Iranians. Uh, but the days ahead will be challenging for the leadership of Saudi Arabia, and the days ahead will be challenging for the leadership of the United States as we figure out the right way to make our relationship work. I have always been a believer that sound, stern counseling of Saudi Arabia needs to frequently happen, which I did frequently, but done so in private. When it enters into the world of the media, it takes on a whole different tone, which becomes difficult for diplomacy to work its magic. So underpinning everything I said is a great respect for Saudi Arabia and Saudis uh, with the firm understanding that it is an authoritarian state. It will not become a Jeffersonian democracy on anybody's watch, uh, but it is so important to the peace, prosperity, and tranquility of the future of the planet as we go forward. It deserves our support, our understanding, and our firm counseling to make sure that reform can take place in a meaningful way. So Ryan, uh, I think I've blathered on enough and I would uh, like to turn it over to you for whatever you wanna ask me. Well, it's going to be what our <clears throat> other colleagues ask you, but I'll, <clears throat> I'll kick that off. I, a great laydown of that of Saudi US and Saudi internal, Saudi regional, uh, and your organizing concept of crossroads, I, I thought was particularly good. So I'll ask a question about another crossroads uh, that would be your own. You, you visited the kingdom, Lord knows how many times in uniform. And then of course, um, as ambassador, uh, as you, sat in Riyadh as ambassador and looked back over your previous experience uh, as a soldier in the kingdom, uh, how did your perceptions change? Uh, how would you frame up, say, the John Abizade that uh, left after two years as ambassador to the John Abizade that uh, had visited the kingdom so many times in uniform? Yeah, great question, Ryan. It's 
You know, on the one hand, I, I'd say I'm actually proud of the way I thought about the problem when I was the commander of CENTCOM because I thought about it, as you know, because we used to talk about it all the time together, that the only way for peace to happen in the Middle East was for the people of the Middle East themselves to roll up their sleeves, put their sectarian differences behind them and solve the problem. And, you know, I, I, I also was wrong in my assessment of Saudi Arabia. I, I have to be honest with you. I, I did not appreciate the authoritarian model of Saudi Arabia. I didn't appreciate the fact that Saudi um, Wahhabi literature, extremist literature could be found almost anywhere in the Muslim world. And it preached such a terrible, hateful way of approaching the world. I didn't appreciate the fact that the Saudis had almost a zero tolerance for Israel at a point when it clearly made sense for them like they are today, uh, trying to cooperate in, in, uh, uh, with the Israelis in some way. So, I mean, I was right about some things, I was wrong about some things, but what surprised me the most and what I was the most wrong about was that there could never be change in Saudi Arabia. And I, I know it will surprise people, but I believe that the change going on in Saudi Arabia today is the greatest that's taken place in the Middle East at any time since um, Ataturk in Turkey back in the 20s. Um, I'll do a quick follow on to that if I might, and then Kathleen just jump in when you have uh, audience questions. The Abraham Accords, as they're called, the uh, formal peace between UAE and Israel, Bahrain and Israel, Morocco and Israel. Uh, how, um, how do you assess the, the Saudi view of all of that? Uh, the UAE, I could see taking such a step to, in part to annoy the kingdom, but Bahrain certainly wouldn't. Um, so uh, how would you assess that from Riyadh? Well, no doubt that there's a certain amount of uh, competition between the UAE and the kingdom, uh, but also don't think for a minute that the UAE, Bahrain, and others would go forward without at least tacit approval by uh, the Saudis. It, when the Saudis look at their number one problem, they look at across at Iran, they contemplate Iran becoming nuclear, and they realize that there has to be balance. And even during my time as, as uh, ambassador in Saudi Arabia, we didn't ever give Saudi Arabia the assurances that I thought we should give them about their own internal, about their defensive, uh, our, our, our relationship to their defense. So um, it's quite an interesting period for the Saudis. Uh, the Abraham Accords will be attractive to the Saudis, their relationship with Israel uh, to guard against Iranian expansion, the IRGC Quds Force in particular, Iranian malign behavior is uh, clearly in both countries' interests. But on the other hand, coming back to the central theme of Islam as the guardian of the two holy mosques, I think all the Saudi leadership understands that they have to tread very carefully about recognition in a formal sense uh, but I think over time, this area that's being developed economically and for tourist reasons, it, it's at the, the hinge of Jordan, Israel, and Saudi Arabia. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a good thing for all three countries. 
Kathleen, or we do we have other questions? Yet? We have some questions that have come in. So let me. Uh, the first set of questions was sent in in advance by Walter Cutler, and there's two of them. So the first one you just touched on a little bit. Um, development of tourism seems to rank high on the list of Saudi Arabia's post-petroleum investment plans. Is this realistic? And his second question is: Ben Hubbard's just published book MBS is being widely reviewed. Do you have any thoughts on it? Uh, first of all, hello to Walt Cutler. He's a uh, famous diplomat, and I appreciated his advice before going to Saudi Arabia greatly, and I thank him for the question. Uh, tourism in Saudi Arabia. I'm, there used to be no tourism. You know, there used to be no places where you could go and listen to, to good music. I, I mean, you know, the sterile atmosphere of Saudi Arabia, say, in the, in the period before the year 2000 was, was pretty grim. Uh, they wouldn't even admit that there were ruins and that there were opportunities for tourism in many parts of Saudi Arabia. And uh, the crown prince has come in and he has really gotten his people to look at some of the great areas of Saudi Arabia that are every bit as powerful for tourism and as attractive for tourism as we see in Jordan. Uh, you know, the, the sites of Petra are um, wonderful and magnificent, but you see them uh, in places all over Saudi Arabia and people are attracted to them. Um, also the Red Sea coast and the idea of an unspoiled uh, tourist pro uh, paradise is, is one that uh, they're, they're contemplating, contemplating. Now, is there enough money to make all this development happen? Is there enough talent? Uh, they are sending people to tourism uh, schools and classes in, in uh, Orlando, Florida, which I think is a good thing. Uh, but on the other hand, they're also fending off missiles that are coming from their various antagonists around the Arabian Peninsula. You know, Walt, I really don't want to comment on any particular book at this time. Um, there are a lot of great books on Saudi Arabia. Uh, the more sensational they are, the better they sell, of course. Uh, I prefer um, to look at, at say, uh, staid uh, clinical analyses of where things are going. So um, I read the MBS book. I learned a lot from it, but there are many other books that I've read that I'll, you know, not put my two cents in right now on. Thank you. Um, we have a question here from Ed Gabriel, who says, General, congratulations on a very successful mission and welcome home. Given the strong Israeli and Gulf country influence in Washington, do you think the Biden administration will be able to conclude a JCPOA without advancing restrictions on proxy terrorism and missile technology? And if a deal is concluded without such restrictions, what will that do for our relationships with Gulf countries? Ed, thanks for that question. That's a really important question. It, you know, look, uh, all of us really look at the JCPOA as a guarantee, a guarantor against the nuclear armed Iran. And, and of course, I think all of us know, and even the Crown Prince has said so, that if Iran goes nuclear, Saudi Arabia will go nuclear. And you know, once the Middle East has nuclear antagonists, um, I can't think of anything worse than that. It's bad enough that we have India, Pakistan that are nuclear armed. Now to think of 
Saudi Arabia and Iran being nuclear arm, it's, it's a, the world's nightmare. I mean, it's, it's hard to contemplate. But on the other hand, the, the flaw in my view of the JCPOA from the very beginning was not insisting that Iran cease its malign behavior with Hezbollah in Lebanon, with the militias in Syria, with the many Iranian IRGC-based militias that happened to operate out of Iraq, and, and now with the, the Houthis down in Yemen and other places. The IRGC Quds Force is the problem, not the people of Iran. All of us want a better future for Iran. We want a better future without the IRGC Quds Force calling the shots. I, just the other day, there was a great interview by uh, um, Foreign Minister Zarif that, that was leaked. You know, what else would you do in today's world other than leak things? Uh, but in it, it was clear that he felt pressured and even somewhat miffed by everything and insulted by the work of the IRGC Quds Force to include Soleimani. So, um, of course, you know, how accurate are leaked things? Who knows? But, but look, let's talk about JCPOA next version. Number one, you've got to address Iranian expansionism, Iranian adventurism. And at the same time, you, you have to ensure that the nuclear genie doesn't get out of the bag in the broader Middle East. And certainly you can't have a viable agreement in my mind without clear consultation with not only our European allies, the Russians and the Chinese, but also with the Saudis, the Emiratis and the broader Arab world. So I would, I would hope that would happen. We should not be so anxious for a deal that we make a bad deal. Thanks. Um, we have two people who have asked questions pertaining to Israel. Um, Stuart Bernstein asks, what can you share with us regarding the real cooperation with Israel? And Sue Cobb asks, um, can you give us a couple of examples of how Saudi Arabia and Israel are trying to cooperate? Well, this is an open forum and it's non-classified forum. I, I am always very, very mindful of levels of classification. Uh, but you can read in the open press that there are avenues of conversation, that there are avenues of visitation, that there are avenues of discussion about the common threat, this primarily being from um, Iranian-affiliated militias and the IRGC, Quds Force advisors that are there on the ground with them. Just recently, you saw a missile from Syria, which was an air defense missile, but nevertheless shows how dangerous it can be for the Israelis, made it through and, and landed in the area of Demona, which is, according to the press, reputed to be an area of considerable um, nuclear activity for the Israelis. You, you look on the other side and you see areas of activity taking place to prevent the Iranians from moving too far forward uh, in the realm of scientific um, forward momentum in the building of their, their nuclear opportunity. They haven't seized it yet, but they, they can, and the, they're bringing the timeline in closer and closer. 
But in the Red Sea in particular, uh, there has to be room for the Israeli, the Saudi, the Jordanians to talk about the activities of Iran, whether they're commercial with regard to illicit transit of oil shipment to regimes such as Syria, or whether they're military, which is the illicit transit of arms, weapons, and technologies, not only to the Houthis, but also to the Shabaab and to other groups in, in the region that are a threat to security. So do I know that they exchange intelligence? I know that I read about it in the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Jerusalem Post. Um, is it to both countries' benefit that they do so? Uh, I think uh, clearly when you look at the threat, uh, there is really no choice. And, and finally, I would say, look, when there is cloudiness in the relationship with the United States, when there is lack of strategic clarity about what we would do in the event of a major attack on Saudi Arabia launched unilaterally by the Iranians, it goes without question that the, that the Saudis have to turn somewhere. And while the UAE is a ally, it doesn't have the punching weight of Israel. Nobody in the region has the punching weight of Israel. Ideally, the United States, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the broader Arab world can work ways to engage the Saudis or the Iranians towards a more peaceful future. And, and then I, I think there's another thing that we often don't talk about, but we, we all need to consider. And that is, how are the Turks influencing the broader action in the Middle East? And do they enter into this equation? I mean, the number of states playing the great game in the Middle East is certainly greater than I was a young officer. It used to be the U.S., Russia, or I should say Soviet Union. Today, you name it, everyone's in there um, operating in a way that is very inimical to uh, peace, prosperity, and tranquility. So it's an interesting part of the world. And like I say, you know, everyone is at a crossroads of some sort. Forging together an opportunity for peace in the region is hugely important. That's why I'm uh, so big on the notion of firm partnership honest partnership with Saudi Arabia and with Israel both. Um, we have two questions from um, Jim Gilmore. Uh, his first is, do the Saudis see Iran as a sectarian rival or a geopolitical rival? And he also asks, is, is Saudi Arabia the key balancer to Iran in the Middle East? Um, great question. The uh, the key balancer to Iran in the Middle East is the United States of America. Saudi Arabia cannot balance Iran. It, my Navy friends call it the, the, the rule of gross weight tonnage. If you've got the biggest ship, you've got to give way to the, to the biggest ship in the, in the sea. And, you know, the ship of Iran is 90 million uh, with a great history and culture and capability compared to Saudi Arabia's 32 million, of whom, you know, eight to 12 million are 
third-party nationals working in, in various uh, capacities in the kingdom. So it's both. Saudi Arabia has a geopolitical rivalry in Iran. But Saudi Arabia is not as hard over on its anti-Shia rhetoric as it used to be, even five years ago. And you see within uh, the eastern provinces of Saudi Arabia, the government starting to reach out to the Shia population in a, in a way I haven't seen before. So they are geopolitically misaligned with regard to sectarianism. Uh, but the Iranians in particular, as long as the ideology um, that's pervaded by the IRGC Quds Force is ascendant, uh, it's hard for Saudi Arabia to, to think of the Iranians as anything other than a threat. But having said that, we should all take note of the fact that in this uncertainty with the current relationship between uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States and the Biden administration, the Saudis have reached out to the Iranians in an effort to try to understand where might there be some ground, uh, not to make peace per se, but to lower the temperature. And uh, while I say that, you know, here yesterday there was a series of Houthi um, surface attacks on targets within the Red Sea up in the Yanbu area that, you know, clearly are being done with the help of. Iranian advisors and technology. So um, look, my, my view is there can be peace between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And especially because Saudi Arabia has, has abandoned its extremist view of the world and has moved against extremism in the Sunni world. What, what needs to happen next is that with the help of the international community and the United States in particular, is that we encourage peaceful revolution or even revolution against the current regime in Iran that results in a normal nation state operating there. Only then can I really see a way for Saudi Arabia and, and Iran to uh, move forward together. They've done so in the past, they can do so in the future. It's a complicated question. I mean, all questions in the Middle East are complicated, uh, but it's also a fascinating question. So uh, thank you. Um, here's a question from Louise Oliver. She says, given the key role that is and will continue to be played by the Crown Prince, can you tell us more about him as a person? What is he like? And for the US, is he the elephant in the room because of his possible role in the Khashoggi murder that seems to continue to hinder the strengthening of US support for Saudi? Yeah, thank you very much. The, um, the Khashoggi affair never in the history <laughs> of a nation state has there been a more stupid event that has transpired than the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. I mean, in every way, in every way that it was handled, uh, it, it brought great discredit and continues to bring great approbation and discredit upon the regime in Saudi Arabia. Now, I sat in a number of meetings with the Crown Prince where he said, in no uncertain terms, I accept responsibility for what happened, but I did not order it to happen. He said that to a couple of US senators and other very senior people that uh, traveled to the kingdom. Um, 
you know, in the court of law, would we convict him? Um, the CIA already has. I'm not sure I would interpret things necessarily the same way, uh, but I accept their view. Um, we need not let the problem associated with Khashoggi color the strategic relationship and the importance of the strategic relationship to the point of causing us to walk away from one of the most important hinges of stability in the region. Now, um, when I think of the crown prince as a, as a human being, he is young. I, I, you know, I was a young paratrooper officer at 35. I was commanding a company of paratroopers. When I think of some of the things I did, I hopefully don't have too many of my peers still around that can remember them. But, you know, they were immature. They were bad judgments. They were things that young men tend to do that they really shouldn't do. And I think we've probably seen too many of those things from the crown prince. But I also think he's an extremely bright, capable person who is well-organized, who insists that he surround himself by competent people first and not sycophantic people, although there are plenty of that around, and that he holds people to account in a way that I've never, ever seen before in Saudi Arabia. And that's why I, I have hope that his reform program can be successful. It's not assured, but I want it to be successful, regardless of the, the difficult things that have happened in the past. I, I think what we really need to do is to grab a hold of, of the intelligence community of Saudi Arabia and transform it the same way that we have transformed the military or are transforming the military. I mean, it's really important that we do that. And, you know, in Washington, of course, the reaction is, oh, my God, these are the guys that killed Khashoggi. Well, exactly. You know, then, then let's get behind a program to reform them, to train them, to help them understand that doing these sorts of things uh, is, is not only bad for the rest of the world, but it's bad for Saudi Arabia, not just their image but for their health and for their future, et cetera. So, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that, that we actually need to double down. And we also need to say, by the way, there's these particular people that are out there that were part of the operation that have yet to be properly sanctioned or punished. And we demand that you do so. We are not, however, going to cause the crown prince to not move up to the level of king when his father passes away. He will be king and he will be king for a long time unless something happens in the diaspora of opposition people uh, that is much different from what I felt it to be in Saudi Arabia. The last thing I'd say, look, I mean, we can talk about this forever, but the last thing I would say is Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is immensely popular, particularly with young women who feel that he has led the cause of their emancipation, despite the fact that women, some of the trans transformational members of the society have been dealt with in a very, very harsh way. But he is very, very popular with the young people. And um, it, it, it's interesting when I would talk to my peers of my age, 
in Saudi Arabia, which are the people that control the country. They are very loyal to the crown prince, but they're also loyal to their kids. And they'll say, look, I'm not sure that everything we're doing is right, that everything we're doing makes sense, but we've got to move forward. And my son or my daughter tells me, this is what we've got to have to really be a different country. And, you know, I guess the last thing I'd say about this is uh, the crown prince has brought about a spirit of nationalism that I really haven't seen very often in the Middle East, and particularly not in Saudi Arabia. And I, I, I think we need to pay attention to that. So um, complicated issues, of course. Uh, thanks. Here's a question from Harry Harris, um, and it's regarding the F-35 sale to the UAE. Uh, what happens if it is turned off vis-a-vis -vis your comments on the Abraham Accords? Look, I, I, I think viable. Harry, how are you, by the way? You, you were a great ambassador. I think four-star admirals make even better ambassadors than four-star generals. So congratulations on your great work in Korea. Um, but actually, let, let me say, look, we, we need to know what side of the fence we will be on in the event of a broader problem in the Middle East with Iran. And, and that has to be to help in the defense of the smaller Emirates and the big kingdom of Saudi Arabia and our other friends and allies and partners in the region. And, and we need not to be conflicted about that. It's essential that we do so, just like it's essential that we stand by Israel against these same sorts of problems, wherever they may come from. So I'm, I'm of the belief that the F-35 to, to our friends in the UAE do, do not change the balance, or as the Russians would call it, the correlation of forces, but it will allow them to be more confident and more capable. And ultimately, ultimately, we need to move towards an integrated air defense and an integrated capability in the region as long as Iran continues to operate in such an aggressive and difficult manner in the region. And, and we also have to insist that the, the Arab countries stay on a defensive posture and that we, we not underwrite any sort of offensive opportunism or intelligence opportunism uh, in order to try to pay the Iranians back for past sin. So um, it's a great question. Thank you. Uh, we have another one more question here. We probably are probably this will be the last one. I don't know. We'll see. Um, running out of time. But that is from uh, Louise Oliver. A, a second question. She asks, what do you think is going to happen in Yemen, given the U.S. withdrawal of support for the Saudis in that crisis? Yeah, boy, it's uh, first of all, I'm a bit dated, you know, when when you're when you're no longer looking at every, everything that's been happening since January when I left, it's difficult to exactly know what the state of play is. And while I regard Nevada as being the center of the universe, it is not the center of the diplomatic universe. And so I, I, I don't know what the state of play is, but I would say that the, the United States has essentially ceased helping them offensively long ago. I mean, I, I, I was just completely flummoxed by the number of times I would have to tell um, senators and representatives that, no, this is not offensive support. This is support of the defensive capabilities of Saudi Arabia 
And, you know, there's a logic to it that the Defense Department certainly outlined and, and I agreed with. And, and that defensive support of Saudi Arabia, um, I, I think if we cut it down too much, you put them in a position of being constantly embarrassed by the Houthi rebels who are using Iranian weapons systems and Iranian advisors to show the Saudi people that Vision 2030 can't succeed, the Crown Prince can't succeed, the Kingdom can't succeed. And that is not in our interest uh, should those things happen. Look, the Houthis have all of the capability to become the Hezbollah of Yemen. And that is not in our interest either. There is an internationally recognized government in Yemen called the Republic of Yemen government that the UN recognizes, we recognize, et cetera. We, we should help them help themselves. Nobody wants to be involved in the war in Yemen and get on the wrong side of all the difficulties that, that in, it, it engenders. But on the other hand, uh, it's really important to tell the Iranians we won't stand for this type of activity at, 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 the, uh, at the hands of the IRGC Quds Force. To me, this needs to be one of the things that's gotta be talked about by the JCPOA. By the way, while I was in Saudi Arabia, four times the Saudis went into a unilateral ceasefire with the Houthis. And not once did the Houthis ever reciprocate. So, um, you know, things aren't always like they are written in the New York Times and the Washington Post, but that's a subject for a different day. Um, I don't think we have any more questions from the audience. So Ambassador Crocker, I'll turn it back over to you. Uh, well, thanks, Kathleen. And um, um, that was the uh, perfect note to, uh, to end on, I think. Um, well, Mr. Ambassador, Thank you for the wonderful work you did for two critical years in, in Riyadh. And thank you for the wonderful presentation you made today. I can only hope that the Biden administration will nominate you as the next ambassador to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> well, thank you, Ambassador Crocker. And I hope they nominate you as the next ambassador to Pakistan. <laughs> Well, that's mutually assured destruction, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. It's wonderful to see you, Ryan. Good to see you. And thanks to you and all. Thank you all. Thanks to the Council of American Ambassadors. Kathleen, thanks to you and Jocelyn. I, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I don't know why I say I enjoyed it so much, just maybe because it was good to talk about Saudi Arabia, and not the University of Nevada basketball team. <laughs> I won't touch that. <laughs>